It's May 12, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, what are people dying from? What causes rheumatoid arthritis? What to do when you're a king? What else would be interesting here? Um, and what are the odds that someone gets an autoimmune disease? Let's begin with the coronation of King Charles. A big event some eight days ago and um, seven days ago. And, you know, a lot of coverage. You know, it's, it plays pretty big all around the world, even the United States. I'm not sure I get it or am as interested as everyone else, but I watched a bit of it. But then I was really intrigued afterwards. There's a whole bunch of news reports about King Charles sausage digits. That's right. The new king, Charles. Lots of pictures of him. Go online and look up King Charles' hands. And they show you a lot of pictures of some very puffy digits. Short digits, squatty digits. Some pictures don't look so bad. Other pictures, it looks, oh my goodness, that's a real sausage digit. He's got four of them. Must have been on sale. The question is, why does the king have sausage digits? And what's going on? Or maybe he doesn't. Is an artifact of paparazzi photography? Well, this is my opportunity to not weigh in on King Charles's fingers, but instead to tell you, if you go to ruminology.com, you can look at the top and see something called the RK card, the ruminology card, and their differential diagnosis of sausage digits is spelled out. As you know, it includes spondyloarthropathies, notably psoriatic arthritis and reactive arthritis, more so than IBD or spondylitis, but other conditions as well, MCTD, systemic sclerosis, JIA, usually the articular kind or the ERA kind, the enthesopathy-related arthropathy, sarcoidosis, and sickle cell. Choose whichever one you want. When I looked at the first pictures I saw of King Charles, I thought, hmm, could be osteoarthritis, could be a sausage digit. We know it's not sickle cell, but other things could be in play here. I want you to be prepared in case he calls. Another interesting report in JAMA this week was about the outcomes of hockey players who were known as enforcers, meaning they're the fighters, the tough guys. Such players are also the ones who end up in the penalty box for misbehaving. The question is, does that kind of behavior in a fast sport like hockey result in bad outcomes? And it's got nothing to do with rheumatology. I love hockey, so JAMA article on hockey, I'm covering it. So what they found was that the fighters, compared to the non-fighters, really had no higher mortality rates when followed over a 10-year period. Moreover, those who were penalized a lot versus those who weren't, again, no significant difference in mortality rate. Yet, they showed the controls lived longer, on average about 56 years, than did the fighters and the penalty-ridden. They only lived about 46 years. The latter group had a lot of lifestyle-related deaths, including suicides and overdose from bad drugs. Um... It's not easy being a hockey player. So uh, causes of RA, kind of interesting. A few reports this week. The NHANES survey, uh, previously we talked about um, 
it being associated with uh, showing data about um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, basically pollution, and the risk of arthritis overall. This sub-analysis looks at the prevalence of RA for those who, when they looked at the exposure levels to like the highest tertile and the lowest tertile, it turns out the exposure to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or hydrocarbons was associated with 80% increased risk. That was significant for developing RA. When they looked at the risk of smoking, and we know smoking has a significant risk of RA, a lot of the smoking risk goes away when you account for exposure to polyaromatic uh, hydrocarbons. So that 90% of the smoking effect seems to be mediated by hydrocarbons. This is sort of a new revelation, if you will. We certainly know that uh, pollution is a major event, and we know that pollution probably affects the lungs. We think the lungs are one of the earliest events in preclinical RA or the onset of RA goes along with the mucosal inflammation theory. Interesting data from NHANES. Another study of nearly 500 patients with incident RA compared whether or not uh, what you know whether whether or not the beverages that one consumes, tea, coffee, alcohol, sugar sodas, sugar-free sodas, any of that associated with a risk of RA. To me, this kind of research is sort of like fishing for a p-value, but this is what they came up with. No risk of RA associated with tea, alcohol, or sugar-related soft drinks. However, a higher risk of RA was seen with co coffee. If you smoked, if you smoked, if you drank more than four cups or four cups a day compared to those who had one or less cups a day of coffee, the hazard ratio went up to went up by 24%, and that was significant. Also, consumption of diet drinks, yes versus no, a 60% higher risk, but only in never smokers. We're getting kind of a little odd here, right? This but not that times the square root of something else. The reduced risk of RA was seen with moderate alcohol consumption, but also that was only in ever smokers. That Again, we know that alcohol has been shown in in population-based studies to be anti-inflammatory and lower the risk, but they said it was mainly in ever smokers and consumption of wine reduced the risk of RA, but only in seropositive patients. What does all this mean? I don't know. I think we just wasted about 90 seconds of your life with that report. The DDW, that's the big meeting for the gastroenterologist. I guess they compare their, um, their outcomes in endoscopy and whatnot. Uh, this is a study that actually looked at patients um, with microscopic colitis, showing that um, amongst 11,000 patients with microscopic colitis matched one to five with population controls. Microscopic colitis patients had a twofold higher risk of developing RA, and that's looking at eight years of follow-up. Pretty interesting. Again, the numbers are low. Amongst microscopic colitis patients, only 1.1% versus 0.6% in controls. That's an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.92, and that's significant. This kind of goes along with my um, um, mentioning earlier that mucosal events could be involved in the pathogenesis of RA. Yet, I've seen a bunch of microscopic colitis patients, not a lot, but I can't ever remember it really being like something that jumps out at me as being associated with RA. Again, is this statistically significant and clinically meaningless? It's for you to decide. JAMA has a report of um, U.S. 
related deaths in the United States, showing that in 2020, 42,000 people died from falls. The interesting tidbit here is that 86%, almost 90% occurred over the age of 65, which is uh, something that we should be concerned about. Falls are a leading cause of, 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 of death um, in many studies. Um, but the interesting thing about this report is it showed that falls, fall-related deaths have increased steadily since 1999. Again, you know who those patients are. They have pain. They're over age 65. They have problems with ambulation. You know, maybe the thing to do as a rheumatologist is to refer them to physical therapy for fall prevention measures, teaching them how to fall, how to avoid falls. Um, to me, this is this along with polypharmacy is, is are the preventable measures that we can institute in our elderly to have better outcomes. A recent study looked at Orphan drugs, as you know, there are a lot of initiatives at the FDA. We're going to talk about two of them here um, today. This orphan drug initiative basically allows for an easier path to drug approval. If you're trying to get a drug uh, approved for a condition that affects less than 200,000 in the United States. So uh, an, an AJAMA analysis of new drugs approved between 2008 and 2016, eight-year period, uh, compared the... Um, profitability, the sales of 86 orphan drugs compared to 232 non-orphan drugs. Turns out that they basically had a similar mean amount of sales over a five-year period. I think that was uh, 719 million versus 812 million. I think that was per year. Um, but the thing to note here is that orphan drug volume is very low. And usually orphan drug Drugs hit the market at a much higher price than non-orphan drugs. And in this study, they said it's sevenfold higher. And so they make up for the volume loss by the cost increases. The question is, is this a good thing for the population? I mean, you've got a lot of patients with orphan diseases. You'd like to have companies develop drugs for them, but do you want them to do it at a cost of greater than $100,000 a year? It's sort of a ethical, philosophical, financial discussion kind of things that I don't want to get into on this podcast. In 2020, the makers of Thogotnib, marketed in the rest of the world as Gisellica, um, suspended its applications with the FDA when they had a, a, um, a letter from the FDA saying they were concerned about some of their safety studies that were still in play. These were safety studies regarding uh, spermatogenesis, um, and it was sort of really unexpected. Why would this jack, selective jack inhibitor have selective spermatogenesis um, or sperm toxicities? And they had a bunch of studies that were in process and whatnot. Um, again, the drug was developed outside the United States. It's currently available outside the United States. Not has gone nowhere in the U.S. But now the results of these studies have been published. The Manta study and the Manta Ray study. A lot of these were done mostly in men mostly in uh, spondyloarthritis and IBD, I think a little bit of RA. Bottom line showing that filgotinib had no effect on semen parameters nor on sex hormones, um, which I think opens the way for filgotinib to seek approval in the United States, but I've heard nothing of the sort. Might we see a fourth jack inhibitor in the United States in the near future? 
A study um, of deaths uh, in the United States shows that COVID dropped from the number three cause to the number four cause in 2022. Yet it still accounted for a quarter million deaths. A lot of those are indirect, a little less than half of those being directly due to COVID. But this was a uh, overall nearly a 50% decrease from the nearly 462,000 COVID-related deaths in 2021. Um, Turns out that the COVID deaths in 2022, most of them did occur early on, suggesting the numbers are showing us the end of the COVID um, scare, atrocity, disaster, um, evil, you name it. The question is, are we done? Or will this come back? Will something else come back? Stay tuned. Uh, I have to, I think, repeat something here that we've covered many, many times. But I keep hearing at my lectures I'm going to um, that there is still some uncertainty about who's at risk for JAK inhibitor um, warnings that came out um, uh, last year and before last year as a result of the oral surveillance study. Again, I'm going to state it again, just for teaching purposes. JAKs um, are never first-line therapy in the United States. They need to be used after a TNF inhibitor. Um, in the EMA, it's if there are no suitable alternatives, is the wording. But realistically, the people who are at risk for major adverse cardiovascular events, cancers, mainly lymphoma, lung cancer, and skin cancer, and VTEs even, were infections, were not the people who were enrolled by their enrollment characteristics, which was, I think, over age 50 or 55, but it was the much older population, over age 65, who have a history of smoking and have a history of cardiovascular events. Again, that's the group that shouldn't be receiving um, JAKs as an option, uh, unless they're out of options. And clearly there are many options these days. Two more reports, another uh, regulatory decision by the FDA that was called the, um, what was it called? The Unapproved Drug Initiative. This started in 2006, where the FDA said, you know, there are a lot of old drugs, nitroglycerin, aspirin, um, codeine, and colchicine, that have been grandfathered in. You know, they were invented by Hippocrates, um, and they're in, you know, the physician's desk reference, but there's not a lot of research on them other than what's happened over the last bazillion years. So the FDA established this initiative where if a company were to take one of these unapproved drugs and put it through um, a modest controlled trial process where they could look at issues of pharmacokinetics, um, uh, drug interactions, safety profile, better, safer use, that they could do that one trial, get it approved, and get a three-year patent protection. This happened with Colchicine in 2010. And this uh, analysis that was uh, featured on first on Med- sort of Medscape first, and then it's in print, I think, in JAMA, shows that in 2010, before this um, new approval of the new Colchicine, which was called Colchris, uh, which showed a newer way of using it, showed new drug interactions with um, uh, clarithromycin and cyclosporin and, and a few other things that were novel and helpful. But the price went from less than five cents a pill 
for um, a monthly price, I think, of about $11 to um, a price of nearly $200 by 2011. At least a 16-fold increase, which made the use of the drug somewhat untenable for a number of patients, including, and mainly because the cost of the drug for the patient, the out-of-pocket cost, rose at least fourfold. So, not surprisingly, during this period of observation from um, 2010 to, I think, 2019, colchicine use declined by 27% from an average of 32 pills a year, 35 pills a year to 22 pills a year. And while colchicine went down, allopurinol use went up by 32%. Ultimately, steroids went up over a decade by 8%. And sadly... There was an increase in gout-related visits to the emergency department and to rheumatology clinics, suggesting that this rise in use and these change in therapies, that patients are not being optimally treated. This was the cost of getting uh, the drug approved. And, and if you look at the package insert, it looks great. I mean, compared to it's like other drugs. But prior to this initiative, it didn't look so good. It was kind of vague. But that's, this has been the price. Patients have suffered. Should we do it again? I don't know. Lastly, Lancet reported that in a UK uh, registry-based uh, analysis of, I think, 22 million people, at least 1 million or more had one or more autoimmune diseases. And the population risk, uh, they looked for 19 different autoimmune diseases, that about 10% of the population had developed an autoimmune disease. Higher in women, 13%, than in men, 7.4%. These numbers of 10% in the population are significantly higher than that reported in 1997 when the risk of autoimmune disease was 1 in 31, or in 2005 when the risk of autoimmune disease was 1 in 20 in men and 1 in 12 in women. Now it's 1 in 10 overall. Um, And so the question is, why is this happening? Is it because we have better testing, greater awareness? Or are these population shifts based on genetics, microbiome, you know, a number of factors. Certain autoimmune diseases went up, celiac disease, Sjogren's Graves, certain went, certain ones went down, pernicious anemia and Hashimoto's, the things you're worried about, not so much, dating about the same. But the risk, the population risk in the UK, probably the same in the US, is one in ten. Higher in women. That's it for this week on the podcast. You can go to the website, check out these citations and more. I want to remind you to sign up and to attend Tuesday Night Rheumatology, where we will again do a Room Now Live replay this week, a replay of three great lectures on vasculitis featuring Drs. Spira, Dua, and Langford. Um, the lectures are New Therapies for PMR and GCA by Spira, Assessment of GCA and PMR by DUA and GPA Treatment Choices by Carol Langford. We'll have Q&A at the end. We'll see you on Tuesday night at TNR. Have a good week.